Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book that takes a deeper look at some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. With this episode, I'm pleased to announce a new affiliation between New Books and Sports and the North American Society for Sport History. Over the last four decades, NASH has fostered research and teaching on sports history in the U.S., Canada, and around the world through its annual meetings, book awards, and the Journal of Sport History. We're happy to join with NASH in promoting the academic study of sport. Appropriately, we have a sports historian as a guest for this week's episode. Lindsay Krasnov's day job is with the U.S. Department of State, where she is responsible for briefing diplomats on the history of American relations with the countries where they are posted. As you'd expect of someone in her position, Lindsay's interests and expertise are varied, and one of her areas of research is the history of French sport, especially soccer and basketball. We are discussing today her research on sports policy and youth training programs in post-war France. In our interview, Lindsay discusses how the French government, in the wake of the Second World War and in the midst of Cold War tensions, deliberately sought to train athletes who would better compete on the international stage. In some areas, these efforts were successful. In others, not so much. The title of Lindsay's book is The Making of Les Bleus, Sport in France, from 1958 to 2010. Published in 2012 by Lexington Books. Lindsay spoke to me from the cafe in the State Department headquarters in Washington, D.C., It's an impressive-sounding address, and as you'll hear, it's also a busy one. Still, you'll hear Lindsay without difficulty, and I think you'll enjoy learning about her research, as I did. Here is our interview. Lindsay, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thank you very much for having me. So, we usually start the interview with a bit of background about our guest, and uh, so I'll ask you to start by explaining what, what led to your interest in French history, and specifically the history of French sport. Um, really great questions, um, and I think it uh, traces back to the fact that once upon a time, I both wanted to be a sp- sports journalist, um, and I also had a fascination with France that I think 
uh, goes back to when I was eight years old and my parents abandoned me to go on vacation in France and I was deeply hurt and forever marked by it. Um, but that kind of generated my lifelong interest in the country and the culture and the people. I did an MA uh, program at NYU in journalism um, to be a sports journalist and I also did a French studies component to the degree and in order to graduate I had to produce a series of in-depth journalistic articles on some aspect of France and being in the sports journalism track that meant some aspect of French sport. Um, this was at the time just after France won the World Cup and just after their 2000 European uh, championship victory. Um, and so naturally football or soccer um, was the natural sport that I turned to um, looking at you know how it was different in France uh, than in the United States. And at the time, my advisor at NYU, Herrick Chapman, he had two young daughters who were heavily involved in the youth soccer scene here in the United States. And in trying to uh, talk out loud about what angle of French soccer I should possibly start looking at, he said, well, you know, my daughters play soccer here in the United States, but is it the same in France at the youth level? Is it the same type of culture? Is it the same type of um, participation either for girls and or boys? Uh, is there a gender divide? How does that happen? And you know, how do they create the players that have just been winning the, you know, the top international uh, titles recently? So that's how I first got started on the topic of youth development in French football. French soccer. Um, and when I went back for my PhD work, you we were always instructed to find a, find a research topic that you are going to be married to for the next several years, preferably something that has not been done before. And I thought, well, I'm very interested still in this topic of youth sport in France because I, I thought it was very interesting in terms of transatlantic uh, comparisons and uh, quite different from what we're used to here in the United States. And no one had really looked at the history of the youth training systems for football in France. Um, so that was kind of how I fell into my dissertation topic. And everything escalated from there. I found that in terms of the, the research itself, uh, because of the sources that were available or rather unavailable because of the relatively more recent nature of my historical work, um, I had to focus in the larger aspect on youth sports policy. And so the the nature of what was available to me also helped to dictate my interests. So are there many other works on on youth training, whether in football or in other in other sports? I think now there have. I think a lot of them have been focused more on the sociological or anthropological mm -hmm. uh, aspects of them um, in terms of uh, the history, I, I know that a lot has been done in terms of looking at the history of physical education culture um, at the youth level, um, in the schools, in the military systems. Um, but, so I think it, it's a field that has certainly become more populated um, since I first started looking at this in the early 2000s. Lindsay, your, your book begins with the epic meltdown of the French national team at the 2010 World Cup in, in mm -hmm. South Africa. And this was, I thought this was a fascinating episode when it was happening from the standpoint of sport, but also from the standpoint of media in terms of, of how it was covered. Um, mm -hmm. in, in your book, why do you see this as a significant event? Why do you begin with this event? I thought it was a, a rather um, 
it was a nice parallel to where I wanted to, you know, begin with the more historical side of the story with the 1960 uh, uh, French debacle at the Rome Olympics. Uh, when they, uh, the poor French showing in terms of lack of medals, mm-hmm. lack of victories, as it were, um, really led to a sense of a, a national crisis um, within the element of sports and really started to provoke the, the new Fifth Republic to rethink uh, some of its more domestic policies. Uh, certainly under uh, the Fifth Republic, the government is not very far away from the private lives of its citizens and sport became one way that it uh, it became an active component of the daily lives of its citizens. Uh, This really originated after the 1960 Rome Games, and I thought that the meltdown of Les Bleus in South Africa in 2010 was kind of a very nice pillar post and parallel, and um, even today it's still a topic that the French media has not let go um, as more recent controversies in the French press and with the French uh, uh, national team players uh, demonstrates. Mm-hmm. So let's get into the the core of your book then. Uh, as you've talked about, you address how the French have trained their young athletes in, in the post-war period, and specifically in the time of the, the French Republic. But to start, I want to ask you about some background. Uh, how, mm-hmm. would you, how would you describe the sporting culture of France prior to prior to the Second World War? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, uh, I guess from from our standpoint, it would be fair to say there wasn't much of a, a sporting culture in the way that we're used to here in the United States, um, where it's an integral part of uh, one's education. You grow up uh, playing school athletics. Uh, you play for your high school team. If you're good enough, you play at the university level and then perhaps think about going on from there or not. Um, it seems to be kind of all permeating in many parts of U.S. society. That was not the case in French society, and I think one could argue to a certain extent is still not the case within French society today, although that's changed quite a bit um, since the 1970s. Prior to the Fifth Republic, um, sport was it was undertaken by individuals, certainly, but uh, more as a leisure time activity, uh, there was not necessarily the sense uh, to create dedicated elite athletes um, to compete for the nation at major international tournaments and competitions. Uh, you know that onus really begins uh, with the entry of the Soviet Union into the international uh, Olympic scene in the 1950s and the creation of a um, sports arena as perhaps another front of the Cold War. So I think that's an important element to keep in mind in thinking about the differences pre- and post-war France and sports culture. Certainly, um, there have been attempts dating back decades and decades uh, by French authorities uh, to incorporate some type of physical education um, uh, elements uh, into the educational structure of the nation's youths, uh, particularly under the Third Republic when um, mandatory physical education first uh, became mandated in the, I believe it's the 1880s, um, as a way to ensure that the uh, boys going through the national education systems would be fit enough to serve their mandatory military service in the army. Uh, and conversely, that, that young French girls would have strong, healthy bodies to repopulate the nation. You know, keep in mind that uh, population element, perceived population crisis and lack of mm-hmm. lack of a positive birth rate weighed heavily on many French authorities for 
decades and decades throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century, um, the post-World War II baby boom is really something quite new and novel. Mm-hmm. So, Lindsay, you already hinted at this, but but I'll ask you, in the immediate wake of the war, what, what view did the, the leadership of the restored French state uh, have of, of sport as part of their efforts to revive the nation? Uh, well, under the Fourth Republic, they continued many of the sports policies that were implemented by the late Third Republic, and then, in some instances, tried to uh, tried to be set up by uh, the Vichy regime in terms of recognizing that physical activity for the youth would help to create stronger bodies. Um, but there was no, there was not a huge um, integrated push. Um, it really took that uh, 1960 Rome Olympic Games to bring everyone's attention to the fact that, um, as de Gaulle said, the, the, the nation lacked a sports culture. The nation's youth were not interested in playing sport extensively. Uh, there were there was a lack of sports uh, facilities and terrains for people who did want to practice sport to practice or compete in. And there was also no money for the training of elite athletes. Um, So it's really the Fifth Republic where this starts to change significantly. There's a series of five-year sports plans that are enacted in the 1960s to rectify these four main issues. A lot of money is thrown at building sports found, uh, terrains, um, pools, uh, race courses, um, at trying to encourage youths to play some more sports. It's seen as an organized leisure time activity that perhaps might also keep them away from other leisure time activities of the youths of the 1960s. You know, they, the adult um, uh, fear of juvenile delinquency was uh, just as potent in France as it was in the United States and other parts of the Western world in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, so sport was kind of part of that part of that package. Interestingly enough, despite all the efforts made by the Fifth Republic in the 1960s to rectify the so-called sports crisis, um, and it was augmented by the fact that the French national football team and basketball team just had poor, poor showings throughout the decade, and these are some of the more premier prestige team sports there was no real progress made in terms of turnaround of results. There was a there was a little bit of an increase at the youth level in sports participation, but not the type of significant turnaround that authorities perhaps had hoped for. Um, and so it, it was in the early 1970s that uh, new methods of trying to encourage youth to play sports or to make sports easier to participate in or to practice uh, were thought of and um, instituted uh, both by the state as well as through the, uh, the French Football Federation, the national governing body of the sport in the country. So I want to clarify, though. So, so was uh, President de Gaulle, was he concerned about sport culture in, in France in the wake of the 1960 Olympics then? Oh, yes, very much so. And it's very much at his behest that the uh, government authorities began investigating the uh, the perceived uh, sports crisis and trying to come up with different ways to rectify it. Uh, news reports um, you know, report that de Gaulle was enraged by the humiliation of the fact that France placed 25th in the 
1960 Olympic uh, medal table. Um, they won their gold medals at that Olympic Games. The you know countries such as Ethiopia, Denmark, Japan um, had at least one gold medal, whereas the French had none to show. Um, and it was particularly in certain sports where they felt like they the French should have a natural inclination to place well in, such as basketball. Uh, the French authorities of the era felt that basketball was a sport that was excellent for the French psyche. It was cerebral. Mm-hmm. It was a team sport, and it, it, it was very well very well suited to the French. Therefore, they thought that the French should excel at it. And while the French certainly did, in terms of the immediate post-war period in 1948, the men's team took the uh, silver medal at the Olympics, uh, that was kind of the last big hurrah for basketball for quite a while. And so there was very much a lot of consternation, not only about the lack of a sports culture and opportunities to practice sport, but also set it against the international context of what type of image a non-winning or non-victorious France was perhaps displaying to the rest of the world at a time, particularly in 1960, a big year of decolonization, still in the last throes of the Algerian War. And it was increasingly clear at that time that the sports arena was one way to reassert oneself, to reassert one's uh, vitality, um, and perhaps gain what we call you know, soft power, mm-hmm. uh, the ability to influence and lead through uh, cultural pursuits or endeavors. So that really that really helped to shore up the realization, particularly from de Gaulle, but you know down the line that this was an important endeavor. Mm-hmm. So, Lindsay, something I appreciate about the book, and you were just hinting at it there, is uh, you not only set the changes in sport policy within the context of of political and social change in France, within France, but -hmm. also within this broader context of the Cold War. And and you have this great line in the book in which uh, an official with the French Basketball Federation remarks about the the tall players. So players six, seven, seven feet tall who are playing for other countries, not for France. And mm-hmm. and he declares that a giant basketball player is like like an atomic weapon. And every mm-hmm. every nation needs one of these. So so I want to ask you to, to talk about how the tensions of the Cold War shape uh, shape French policies and, and French rhetoric so that even the the absence of a seven footer on the on the French basketball team is seen as something of a national crisis. Certainly, you know, if the Ministry of Youth and Sports is that concerned about it, it you know, very much ties into the Cold War. Um, and interestingly enough, in this particular example, the, you know, the lack of um, tall players, it's a, it's a concern that continuously plagues French basketball um, until the, 19, the 1990s, when a new type of French player is starting to appear on the courts, and after 1997 to appear on the courts in the NBA, very tall players, many of them um, who have heritage uh, in the uh, Antilles. So trying to, trying to find tall players is a major concern for basketball, um, and it helps to spur the uh, integration of sports medicine into uh, creating elite athletes. Um, during the Cold War, but very much concerns about trying to win or to win in enough different types of ways was one focus of the work of the Ministry of Youth and Sport. So something that you don't address in the book, but I wanted to ask this, is is didn't people within the Ministry of Sport in the, in the 60s, in the wake of this debacle at the at the Rome Olympics, didn't they ever pause and say, yeah, we're not very good at Olympic sports, but we're really good at cycling. 
and let's just be happy that we're we're the best cyclists in the world. Why did they Why did they uh, think that we have to compete in in these other sports rather than uh, taking pride in in this sport that France is among the best nations in the world at? I did not necessarily come across anything that would that would indicate that they were looking to specialize in that particular way. Um, I definitely came across documents um, that reinforced the notion that there are certain prestige sports that France must compete in and must compete well in, if not win. There was very much the recognition that France was a middle-of-the-road country. It was not as large as the Soviet Union or the United States. Therefore, it did not have the same type of uh, population population or financial resources to throw at the sports project. Mm-hmm. However, you know, there was recognition that there are certain prestige sports that the French ought to compete in and ought to at least have a good showing in. Uh, cycling, of course, was mentioned, but uh, the main ones uh, were uh, track and field, swimming, skiing, uh, basketball, and fencing. Uh, you know, the French thought that fencing was a cerebral sport um, best suited for their national psyche in the same way that they felt basketball was a uh, sport best suited for their psyche. Uh, So that was another kind of uh, prestige sport. And then, interestingly enough, they also considered football to be worthwhile. And granted, it was not perhaps as prestigious sport within the Olympic context as one would think, but certainly by the 1960s, it it was very clear that the Football World Cup um, and the entity of FIFA uh, was certainly on the ascent and perhaps in certain ways eclipsing the importance of the Olympic theater in terms of finding out the Cold War through sports. Uh, because the thing with football and the World Cup is that you do not need to be the superpower to win. You know, the, the, the advantages enjoyed by the United States and the Soviet Union of size and population and so forth, uh, no other country could really compete with them in the same way within the Olympic context, perhaps with the exception of East Germany, which made it their mission to do so. Um, but for everyone else, football was a much more, uh, it, was a, it was a lower hanging fruit and something that they could both easily, uh, easily try to aim for, as well as realistically win. Uh, you know, football was not a sport that was dominated by either the Soviet Union or the United States, and so that also had an appeal as well. Plus the fact that, you know, particularly starting with the 1966 uh, World Cup, uh, the, you know, the huge mediatization of uh, FIFA and football um, significantly helped to bolster its appeal, its popularity, and also the sport's uh, soft influence. So it's interesting that uh, the ministry was this calculated in terms of determining where to where to put its resources for for youth development. That uh, <laughs> it was thinking one, you know. So something I picked up is that you talked about they they aim for sports that they saw as according with French French culture or French national mm-hmm. identity, while at the same time aiming for sports that uh, they thought they had a good chance of winning. Mm-hmm. Yes, certainly. And you know, just by the nature of the documents I was looking at, uh, they did not invest as heavily as a state in football um, development. They let the Football Federation do that mostly because it was the largest and the richest um, federation at that point in time and therefore had the financial as well as the personnel wherewithal to do so. Um, and there were natural tensions between the Ministry of uh, Youth and Sport and the Football Federation, um, perhaps more so than some of the other examples of 
um, government um, and federation relations that I've seen. But I think that's an important component to keep in mind. The reason that football got so much attention is that it was just the it was the number one sport in the country amongst the youths. So, Lindsay, you described the, the various programs that were put in place during the 1960s, and you mentioned earlier that these, these weren't successful. Why, why weren't they successful? Why didn't those programs work? I think that uh, I think there are several reasons for that, but I think primarily there are so many other leisure time activities that were competing for the interest of French youth in the same way that I think you could say that of many of the different youth demographics uh, in the West uh, during the 1960s. Uh, 1960s youth culture was not necessarily country-specific. There was certainly a, um, a European and also kind of a, a more globalized aspect of it, the appeal of rock and roll. Uh, certainly uh, was one of the key foundations of that um, increased um, affluence in many of the Western societies helped to feed this. Uh, there is very much the uh, culture of consumerism that fed into it as well. So there are other ways to spend one's time um, when you're not in school than playing sports. It starts to change a little bit in the 1970s with greater greater attention given by the government to try to create a sports culture by greater efforts of the three French government television stations in the 1970s to broadcast some sports on television. But this really starts to change after the liberalization of uh, French television in 1984, where the government loosens its control over the television market and allows the first private uh, television network in France to to operate Canal Plus. And uh, if you remember uh, when HBO first started here in the United States, its bread and butter were um, movies and um, boxing, so sports. Uh, Canal Plus focused on you know the, the similar program of broadcasting movies and sports, and increasingly live sports, and increasingly uh, NBA games as well. Um, so th- this very much um, started to create a greater, a greater inclination towards a, a national sports culture, if you will, or certainly a greater proclivity towards youth to see sports as something as enjoyable leisure time, more so than perhaps at any other point in time. Um, and certainly by the late 1970s and 1980s, you have some of the first much more modern uh, sports stars, you know, sport, these huge athletes who are all over the media who are you know, not only the symbol of your team, but also perhaps you know this role model, maybe not role model, but idol uh, for many French youths. And I want to ask about the the policies of the of the 1970s, and and you write about that that France attempted to find a third way in in youth training mm. programs. So can you talk about this? What was what was this third way and and what did the French the the ministries and the federations what steps did they take in trying to achieve it? Uh, and, you know, it's really interesting that they interacted with a lot of their fellow European sports ministries or officials and went around observing different types of systems, particularly the East German system. And uh, they, they liked the fact that the East German system created a dedicated a dedicated way for young athletes to train, to specialize and become elite athletes from an early age. And when you look at the evolution of the youth sports programs and policies in France, they start off being 
heavily influenced by the East German systems, not completely. Certainly, they you know, didn't want the uh, top-down uh, totalitarian approach, and you know, the, the, the doping issue within the East German schools is an, another issue aside. But so that's really how they start off in the mid-1970s. As sport in general in France begins to liberalize in the 1980s, including uh, the liberalization of television, but also including a, a big push by the Minister of Youth and Sport in 1984, um, these programs start to liberalize a little bit more. They start to be, become not more American, but to work in closer public partner, uh, public-private uh, partnerships rather than totally state-funded. And what was the place of girls in, in these training programs? Uh, were athletic officials attentive to uh, training female athletes as well? From the documentation I've been going through, the national, so the federal sports programs um, for youths paid attention to both boys and girls in equal measures. Um, particularly so in basketball, which was long considered a sport very suitable for French girls. And the French women's team has had a long history of fairly illustrious success. Um, within the private professional youth programs that were implemented by the Football Federation in the 1970s, by nature of their demographics, they only focused on boys. Um, that that aspect of it only began to change in the I think the early the late 1980s and 1990s as both FIFA and thus the French Football Federation made a much greater spur to encourage female participation in football and to try to change the sport's image in France as being a purely masculine one to being something that girls can do and can excel at. Lindsay, as you looked at uh, at French training programs in the 1970s and 80s, did you see um, innovations or advances that were made there that we then see being adopted in, in other countries? Perhaps not necessarily at the, uh, well, you know, the... The thing with the French systems is you have the national system and then you also have the the system um, set up by the professional teams in certain uh, team sports, uh, football being the earliest, and then by the 1980s and 1990s being followed by basketball, rugby, handball, and one other team sport that I am blanking on right now. <laughs> um, so I think you see a lot of... I think you see a lot of innovation occurring within the private system of the professional football clubs in the 1980s. Um, I think you see it cross-pollinating with the national federal system, which focuses also not just on the athletic part, but also on the educational aspect. And that cross-pollinates. And by the early 1990s, you start to have the recognition that France is producing some of the best young football talent um, in the world at that time. And I think many of those tactics, uh, the combination of technical athletic training with academic training um, and um, medical supervision, they start to be taken up by other countries um, in terms of their national systems. That being said, you do have certain private clubs um, in Europe that adopt a somewhat similar model as the French um, prior to the 1990s. Um, certainly, uh, what is it, uh, La Mesa at FC Barcelona 
um, on Ajax in, um, in the Netherlands, uh, their youth football academies look very similar in many ways to the, you know, to the French academies of the era. Lindsay, based on, on the research that you did um, in, in the documents of the ministries and, and so forth, what did you find in terms of the government's approach to sport and the increasingly multicultural complexion of France? So with, uh, with migration into France, did French officials see uh, the various sports academies as a way to, uh, how to say, um, to assimilate um, the children of immigrants, or um, or was or did the document show that this was a problematic issue uh, for the government? In the government records, no, because uh, keep in mind the the government, the French government records, or at least for the Ministry of Youth and Sport, have a thirty-year moratorium. So okay. the last I was able to see was I think nineteen eighty, nineteen eighty-one, in oh, the occasional okay. odd file. So that was not really that wasn't even really part of the rhetoric precisely at that time. Um, also keep in mind that the sports academies are different from the sports, the national sports training institutions. The sports academies is kind of the phrase given to the, uh, the you know, the sports training centers yep. that are run by the professional clubs, whereas the, you know, the national and regional sports training centers, uh, they're called CREPS, and then uh, they all have their, their senior sections uh, headquartered in at the INSEP campus, the Institute of the National Institute of Sport and Physical Education, um, right outside of Paris. Um, so it's important to make that distinction between the terminologies. The the government archives did not really mention the professional sports academies um, in the 1970s and 1980. Um, other than that, they were up and running and really had no comment in terms of who they were recruiting or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and that being said, you do start to get a, a greater public discourse in the French press beginning in the 1980s and certainly continuing through to nowadays about the aspect of immigration, assimilation of children or descendants of immigrants and how sport has always particularly team sport has always been viewed as a way to help the assimilation process by playing for your local team or and if you're good enough playing for your uh, national team it really helps to consecrate a you know a, a French identity of being at one with a state um, you see some of that in the press and in the 1980s you start to see a few press accounts questioning why is it that we do not see the youths of the African immigrants rising up through many of the football training centers um, by the 1990s, that's not quite a concern at that point. But uh, I think it also reflects just the different waves of immigration. So, Lindsay, you did a lot of uh, archival and library research. Didn't you, did you also do some field work? Didn't you visit a, <laughs> yes, uh, an did. academy? Yeah. What did you, what did you find there? Um, super fun to do field work all the time. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> all the social scientists get to do that, and the historians never do. <laughs> I know. I know. Pick a, pick a topic that's more recent. Um, I visited the Academy at Marseille and also the Academy at Rennes, which I, I can never pronounce because I cannot roll my R. Um, but uh, so one, one, one in the north, one in the south. And it was very interesting um Comparing and contrasting um, the two the two centers, um, 
you know, it also feeds into a lot of the stereotypes of the division between North and South in France. The, the, the people in the South told me things about the people in the North and vice versa. Um, but they, they had many, many of the very same components and all of the football youth academies um, in France are governed by a universal set of laws um, and they're published and slightly tinkered with every year. So I did look through all of those laws um, that kind of set forth the overarching framework and then within that each club can tinker as it will so that it fits their needs and their requirements while holding to the rules put forth by the federation. Um, but it, it was very much like a tiny little private boarding school. There were um, dormitories for the boys uh, who would range in age between 12 or 13 at the younger end and 18, 19, 20 perhaps in some cases on the older end. Uh, there was a dedicated classroom space. There were dedicated teachers, academic teachers who were there. Uh, there is a dedicated um, space and training facilities and uh, medical medical equipment and so forth for the youth academy players. Um, they had the whole dining complex um, there, and so the youth the youth academies were very much the you know the the senior team facilities. So very much uh, trying to enforce a certain sense of larger family amongst the different levels of the team. So I know that uh, a constant concern in post-war France has been the threat of Americanization. Um, in your research, do you find were there were there concerns about Americanization in in French sporting culture? That's a good question. Thinking quickly through my head, um, I don't necessarily see that simply because the the sports, the most popular sports in France and the United States are so different. Mm-hmm. Uh, the while the the NFL did try to have a Europe wing and play in different parts of Europe that did not really catch on. Baseball, likewise, has not caught on significantly in France, although there certainly is a French baseball and softball federation, and they're doing some interesting things. Um, you know, the other the other main um, American sport that became quite popular but was always had a certain degree of popularity in France is basketball, and there. I don't know if, I think it's still too early on in the French basketball revolution to tell exactly if there are fears of Americanization um, mm-hmm. of the game in France. I think I think certainly the French game is much more reflective of the European or international game in general. Um, I think there has been an increased uh, degree of athleticism at the international level, um, perhaps reflective of a larger Americanization of the game. Uh, but I I have not really come across sentiments or, or perhaps fears of that quite in the same way. So there's no reaction against, uh, say, French players going to the NBA? No, really quite the contrary, because the NBA is seen as the elite league in the world for basketball. Uh, the French are very proud that they you know, they have, I think, 10, 11, 11 or 12 players who are on full-time NBA rosters this season. And since 2007, France has been the largest supplier of foreign or international um, labor in the NBA. Um, And so they are quite proud of that. We're almost out of time, Lindsay, and I want to ask about uh, the conclusion. You have uh, the title of the conclusion to your book is is a second sports crisis, question mark. And, and I want to ask what, what this crisis is that uh, uh, you're, you're warning against. Well, 
in my book, I mentioned that the first sports crisis is really, uh, really dovetails around this larger crisis of the nation in the 1960s and the need to uh, reposition the nation of France and reposition its youth and its image abroad, um, as well as the general crisis of youth at the time, as there were in many other countries. Um, and so that the sports crisis in the 1960s was intimately tied with these and was really held up in the lack of sporting victories. And that really helped to spur on the the creation of youth sports policies in France. Um, The second sports crisis that I allude to has to deal more with the issue of identity and sport. And, um, and you see this, I think, a lot just reflected in the coverage and continued um, aftermath of the, uh, the 2010 meltdown of Les Bleus in South Africa. Um, there is very much the recognition that sport is a natural way to help assimilate people into a given society, that it can speak volumes about conferring identity or representing a nation or or a locality, um, and that there's a certain image that goes along with that, especially in this hyper-mediatized uh, era. I think the the sports crisis, the second sports crisis, is very much caught up in perhaps the crisis of French identity that you've seen manifest itself since the 1998 World Cup win, um, and that of a multi-ethnic France, and just what does it mean to be French these days? Who is French? What does that mean? And I think the old, you know, the old um, program of full assimilation into the French state, I don't think that necessarily holds today. And so I think that's where a lot of this sense of crisis and identity crisis comes from. And, and following from that, so in 1998, France wins the World Cup, mm-hmm. and so so now they are no longer the the nation striving to have victories. They are the victorious nation. So it's something of this mm-hmm. second crisis out of the fact that we've been on top and we need to stay there. I think there is certainly a sense of we've been on top and then we've hit rock bottom and why can't we get back to the top again? Certainly the 2002 World Cup was not a pretty one for France. They exited after the first round. 2006, almost, almost there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will not get into the Zidane headbutt. Uh, but certainly you know, certainly 2010 really magnified this crisis of we've hit rock bottom. We produce, we produce talented players who are fairly successful in the top leagues in the world. They represent, you know, they, they're in a sense sports ambassadors, perhaps not officially so, but uh, certainly visually so. Um, yet they cannot get it together and act as a unified team. And, I, you know, I think that feeds into it. So it sounds like the work crew is getting ready for the... <laughs> For the dinner rush in the background. Sorry. (laughs) The only place we have Wi-Fi in the building. Go figure. (laughs) All right. Well, since since we have so much activity, I'll I'll wrap things up, Lindsay, by asking, what are you you working on now? (laughs) I am. So I'm working on two things. I think my larger project is I'm looking at the French basketball revolution, as I'm starting to call it, the the turnaround of the sport. Um, both in terms of um, production of victories or titles, as well as the, in the production of players and the place of basketball within French culture um, since the 1970s. And you know, certainly kind of building through the first Frenchman to play in the NBA um, in 1997 and fast-forwarding to the question of why is it that France is the largest supplier of foreign players in the league today? What does that mean for French basketball? Um, especially the, the, the fact that... 
not all, but many of the French NBA players can trace their roots to Guadeloupe. Is there something about the, that sport's role in uh, Guadeloupean society or a, a variety of different factors? So kind of looking at many of the issues that one looks at in French football, not only training and you know the sport's uh, role within the larger culture um, and international context, but also through the issue of identity and assimilation. Um, so that's my main project that I'm working on right now. I'm also starting to follow up on this, um, you know, last question you asked about the uh, the fallout of 2010 and what that means for the youth football academies and how that's being perceived and if that fits into the larger picture or not. All right. Well, Lindsay, thank you for coming on New Books and Sports. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to an interview with Lindsay Krasnoff about her book, The Making of Les Bleus, Sport in France, from 1958 to 2010, published in 2012 by Lexington Books. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from political science to popular music. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter at New Books Sports or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.